Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We are up to episode 53, and this week we'll take a closer look at the use of improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, in the war. While not a new invention, a Scotsman fighting for the Boers used a new remote triggering mechanism, which is illuminating. Nothing brings out innovation in humans more than creative techniques to kill and maim each other. So we're in the third week of September 1900, and it appeared to be one of those natural lulls in the war where small skirmishes were reported, and a bridge or two was blown up, but the Boers were planning a long-term strategy, which the British were only now beginning to fully understand. And the IED was symptomatic of the new guerrilla war. We know that the British in South Africa were totally reliant on the railway lines that had been built throughout the 19th century. The British Army needed these to transport men and materiel to the two main battlefronts in the Free State and Transvaal, and also to transport the injured back to the various ports in order to be shipped home. That's because the alternative to railway lines, the paths, dirt tracks and roads were unpredictable and susceptible to the seasonal conditions. Also, mechanised equipment was in its infancy. There were steam-driven vehicles which the British used, but these were few and far between. Oxen and horses were expensive to ship, and these supplies were not always easy to come by. We've heard, for example, how Argentina, Canada, the USA, Arabia, India and other parts of Africa had been tapped for supplies of mules, horses and oxen. More about this when we hear about the shipping lists in a short while. It took months to source these animals, then load them aboard ships, which would sail or steam to Cape Town, Durban, Port Elizabeth, East London, and even Beira in Portuguese East Africa. The British experienced a great deal of difficulty in maintaining healthy livestock throughout the war, and there was always a shortage of horses, and they were often in poor condition. Like humans, horses need rest and relaxation, and often this was denied, leading to illness and death. The British forces quickly discovered that they could only control areas of the Northern Transvaal Republic which were physically occupied by military columns. The vast expanse of the former Boer Republics made it impracticable for the 25,000 British and colonial troops there to control the territory effectively. Furthermore, the great distances between British columns allowed the Boer commanders considerable freedom of movement. This meant Boer commanders decided to adopt a strategy of guerrilla warfare which began in earnest in September 1900. Initially, these tactics presented difficulties for the conventional British forces. Time would have to pass before effective countermeasures could be developed and employed against the guerrillas. These would include farm burnings, concentration camps, and other forms of punishment against the mainly civilian population. Boer commandos were sent off to their own districts with orders to act against the British whenever an opportunity presented itself. Their strategy was to cause as much damage as possible and then to move off quickly, disappearing into the felt prior to the arrival of British reinforcements. Boer attacks relied on sound intelligence provided by fast-moving units such as Dani Taron's Ferkenners or Scouts. Early on in the war, the Boers recognised that the British reliance upon the railway was a significant weakness which could be exploited. By late 1900, the nature of attacks against British trains had become increasingly sophisticated and well executed. To deal with this threat, the British began to equip themselves with additional armoured trains, some of which were built as far away as Bulawayo in southern Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe. 
These trains were often death traps for those on board, as the Boers merely laid in wait and ambushed those on board, often blowing up the train and then shooting the troops who had no means of escape. But later in the war, the design of the armoured train changed, and they became far more effective. But we need to focus on the use of the improvised explosive device, or IED, which was first triggered using mechanical equipment on the main railway line between Pretoria and the Transvaal and Delagoa Bay, which was the port in Portuguese East Africa. The main proponent of this new IED was someone by the name of Captain Jack Hinden, hardly a Boer-sounding name, and of course he wasn't a Boer, he was Scottish. Captain Hinden eventually became known as Dynamite Jack for his many attacks against British trains. His history is interesting. He joined the British Army as a boy soldier, but deserted, claiming to have been physically assaulted by a senior member of his unit while he had been stationed in Durban in the British colony of Natal. In 1896, he assisted the Boers against Dr. Starr Jameson during the failed attack known as the Jameson Raid. And for his loyalty, Hinden was awarded citizenship of the Transvaal Republic, an honour not normally bestowed upon an Eitlander or foreigner at the time. At the outbreak of the Anglo-Boer War, Hinden was sent to Middleburg Commando, with whom he fought with distinction throughout the first year of this campaign, particularly at Spionkorp, which had proved so deadly for the British. Between February and April 1900, Jack Hinden formed a unit known as the Hinden Scouts, which would prove so successful that Lord Kitchener publicly stated that Hinden had caused more difficulties for British and colonial forces than any other Boer commander. That may have been an exaggeration, but there's no doubt Hinden had an axe to grind with the British, and he ground it. The Hinden Scouts became notorious train wreckers, particularly along the Pretoria Delagoa Bay railway line, where they operated under the command of General Ben Fulyun alongside Captain Henri Slechtkamp and his group of commandos. From September 1900 until almost the end of the war, the Hinden Scouts relentlessly disrupted British use of the South African railway network. Although explosives were used to lethal effect against British trains by a number of Boer commandos, the tactics and technology employed by Jack and his men stand out as having been particularly sophisticated. Hinden would take time to survey the ground in order to ensure that once a train had been derailed, his unit would have the advantage of surprise and the ability to withdraw rapidly from the scene. Considering the technology available at the time, perhaps even more impressive than the tactics employed by Hinden and his men, was the relative sophistication of the IED they used to derail British trains. This was a victim-operated device, based on the firing mechanism of a Martini-Henry rifle, and it derailed trains on many occasions. Research shows that this particular type of device was unique to Jack Hinden's party of train wreckers and that the IED was designed to be set off by a locomotive passing over the rail track directly above it. Earlier forms of IEDs had relied on fuses of some sort. In the upcoming First World War, they'd make a return, particularly in Gallipoli, where the Russians had shown the Turks how to design hidden bombs linked to a chemical fuse. A soldier would trigger this by stepping on the small pipe containing chemicals, which would then cause a container buried underfoot to explode, obliterating the poor trooper and severely injuring or killing those close by. These were not mines in the strict sense. They were irregular devices using tins or buckets and other improvised equipment. 
Hinden used a payload of up to 50 dynamite cartridges contained in a bucket which was buried beneath the ballast or stone aggregate surrounding the railway track and sleepers. The great advantage was that it did not bring about destruction on a large scale, simply derailed the target locomotive and rendered it unserviceable, which meant they could steal everything in the coaches behind. This meant the damage to the track was relatively superficial too. However, replacing twisted and damaged tracks was time-consuming for the British railway engineers. In most cases, the train was brought to a standstill at a distance of about 30 metres from the point of contact, at which stage the British had very little time in which to decide between two courses of action, fight or surrender. Those who positioned the IED and bucket of dynamite were very careful not to leave any footprints which could be traced by British foot patrols. To avoid leaving any sign of their presence, the perpetrators would walk for quite a distance along the rails to and from the selected site. There, the ballast would be painstakingly removed from beneath the rails, and after the device had been correctly positioned, it would be carefully replaced. The trigger would be placed in intimate contact with the underside of the track and was designed to be pulled by the weight of the target locomotive as it passed over. Before leaving the site, the wrecker party would place all excess stones in a bag and remove them. At every stage of the operation, great care was taken to conceal any traces of any activity. Between June and mid-September 1900, construction engineers of the Imperial Military Railways, or IMR, made repairs to the Pretoria Delagoa Bay railway line. The IMR began to move troops and material along the line once the Port station was occupied by the British forces on the 25th of September 1900. Trains were derailed on a daily basis and the line was often damaged at some point and the attacks were so successful that from the beginning of October 1900 the IMR suspended the running of trains at night on the line between Pretoria and Waterfall to the east. Troop trains returning to Pretoria were routinely ambushed and it became clear that suitable defensive measures needed to be put in place if the British were going to be able to continue to use the railway. These IED attacks posed a serious challenge to the British as they have in Afghanistan and Iraq for the Americans and other allies fighting the guerrilla movements there. We'll return to Hinden and his blasters in future podcasts as his IEDs played havoc for the next year of this war. In the meantime, General Louis Boerter had taken 2,000 men north to escape the British in the Transvaal with a plan to travel back past the capital Pretoria and to gather more burghers for what he now saw as a long-term guerrilla war. General Christian de Wet and General Kurs de la Rey were also preparing themselves for the long haul as they remained mobile and elusive. Every attempt at cornering these two generals with around 2,000 men had failed, much to the chagrin of the English press and the admiration of international military observers. And the general election in the UK was drawing nearer. It had been set for October 1900, as the Conservatives and their partners in government thought that with the Boer War technically over, it would be a cakewalk politically. We heard about the preparation and plans in last week's podcast. While the war in South Africa moved imperceptibly towards a chronic condition back in the UK, a quick look at the shipping lists for September 1900 are enlightening. I'll run through a few. The London Times reported on Saturday 1st September 1900 a vessel known as the Canada left Southampton for Cape Town after embarking 26 officers and 808 men, while the Lismore Castle landed at Plymouth 
offloading 12 officers and 141 sick and wounded. The same paper reported on Monday, 3rd September, that a boat arrived with the third batch of Boer prisoners, but no numbers were mentioned. The Times shipping list showed that the Nubia from Southampton arrived at Natal carrying horses and equipment on the 3rd, while the Montcalm, with 1,400 mules for South Africa, had sailing delayed due to a mutiny of English stokers. Forty stokers were jailed, it reported. In the midst of war, there's always union activity of some sort. The paper then reported that Orania, with 34 officers and 911 men, arrived at Cape Town on September 6, while the Assay, with 77 officers, 5 nurses, 1,186 invalid men and 62 men from Cape Town, left Las Palmas in the Canary Islands en route to Southampton. The Tantalong Castle had left Cape Town for England a few days earlier, carrying Colonel Gorko, Russian military attaché, and Lieutenant Asselberg of the Dutch Army. Both had been observers in South Africa. On September 9th, the British Princess arrived at St Vincent in the Caribbean to pick up supplies for the war, while the Bremer Castle arrived at East India Docks in London, bringing nearly 600 deported foreigners from the Cape. None were ever allowed to disembark in England, but were taken to various European destinations, including Holland. Then on the 11th of September, the Oratava left Tilbury Docks after loading 28 officers and 720 men for South Africa. They were all from West Surrey and Lancashire. Perhaps one of the more poignant updates in the London Times on the 15th of September was a note saying, It is announced that between the present time and October 25th, 14 vessels are expected to arrive at Cape Town with 12,915 horses and cobs for use by the army. Six ships from New Orleans with 5,785 horses, three from Fuime with 3,030 horses, two from Buenos Aires with 1,850 horses, two vessels from Montreal with 1,500 horses, and one from Sydney with 750 horses. There are also 5,449 mules due at the Cape, four ships all from New Orleans. The number of horses and mules sent to South Africa in that month topped 30,000 alone. Then, the sobering note on the 19th of September, which read, The Kildonian Castle sailed Saturday for Southampton with 1,147 invalids. All were supplied with an outfit of warm clothing, pipes, tobacco and cigarettes by the absent-minded beggar relief call. These lists reveal the global movement of men and material. There's not enough time to outline all shipping movements, but take it that hundreds of vessels were sailing the seven seas in September 1900, bringing supplies and men to South Africa and ferrying the sick and wounded home, along with what was known as the undesirables, or civilians who were not friendly to Britain. An entire maritime production line of war was chugging along and still had 24 months of chugging to do. With that, we'll throw out the anchor and rest up in our podcast port for this week. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and you can send me emails via the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>